KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, we know a lot about the bad things J. Edgar Hoover did, but it turns out there's a lot we didn't know. Historian Beverly Gage will explain. Her new book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. It's been nominated for an LA Times Book Prize, which will be awarded next week. But first, our political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here as always, John. Well, a decade ago, our friend Mark Cooper said, the best thing that could ever happen to the Democrats would be for Republicans to succeed at outlawing abortion. Then last year, the Supreme Court did abolish constitutional protection for abortion rights, and that made state politics the crucial battleground for women's right to choose. And then came the midterms where the Democrats made a surprisingly strong showing. And then last week, there was that landslide victory in the Wisconsin Supreme Court election where the progressive candidate who campaigned on abortion rights, Janet Protasewicz, very proud I can pronounce that name, won by 200,000 votes, 10 times the margin of Joe Biden's victory in 2020. Now, now that Texas judge, Catch Marek, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, Something? last week was full of unpronounceable names. <laughs> Wisconsin, Texas, you know, they, they all sound like some Eastern European mishmash. It's, it's wild. Yes. So this Texas judge has ruled that FDA approval of the abortion drug mefepristone was wrong in 2000 and that the drug should be banned nationwide. So today's question is, what will Republican candidates say about banning mefepristone nationwide? As of now, I look this up, there's only one Republican senator who has publicly expressed support for a nationwide ban on mefepristone, Cindy Hyde-Smith of Mississippi. Uh, there's only one Republican presidential contender who has praised the ruling, Mike Pence. Uh, Trump was silent, Ron DeSantis was silent, but how long can they be silent and all the other Republican candidates who will be up for election or re-election in 2024, how long will they be able to avoid taking a stand on a nationwide ban of mefepristone? As long as they uh, can uh, avoid uh, journalists and, and preferably everybody else. I mean, that that's actually a new, you know, Republican norm. I mean, DeSantis refuses to hold press conferences and meet with anyone in the press, you know, to the left of, uh, of Fox News. Um, by the way, I should add that our friend Mark Cooper uh, would be far wealthier if he had become a political consultant. That was <laughs> the most on-target prophecy anyone's made in quite some time. But, you know, Republicans, you know, run away when a journalist with a microphone or a reporter's notebook approaches them to ask about abortion. The dilemma is somewhat personified in, uh, in Ron DeSantis. In, in order to uh, increase his popularity among the Repub within the Republican base, uh, he is probably going to sign a, a bill, which is currently, uh, I think, passed one house of the Florida legislature and is going to the, uh, the other, that would outlaw abortions after six weeks. The current Florida law 
is after 15 weeks. Well, of course, large numbers of pregnant women don't know they're pregnant yet six weeks into their pregnancy, you know, by supporting that bill, which he's pretty much indicated he will do, uh, he's going to probably increase his popularity within the Republican base and guarantee that should he be the nominee, he will lose the presidential election, probably taking down any number of other Republicans with him. That is a dilemma of the Republican Party right now. It's not simply on abortion, but in an abortion, it's it's there in capital letters. Yeah, I looked up the public opinion on abortion. It was stable for like 20 years. It was, you know, there was about 60% were in favor of some restrictions on abortion, but that, but not, not a lot. Right now, let's see, the Pew Research Center poll taken right after the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade showed that 62% of respondents said abortion should be legal in all or most cases. 36% said the procedure should be illegal in all or most cases. 62, 36, pretty decisive margin in American politics. It's become even greater since then. There's a new Gallup poll that found just 13% said abortion should be illegal in all circumstances. That's an all-time low since Roe v. Wade was issued in, in 1973. And, so, we, and we've seen this reflected in uh, the votes of solidly Republican states on ballot measures affecting uh, abortion rights in Kansas and Kentucky some of the most pro-Republican, pro-Trump states in the nation. Nonetheless, the decisive majorities for continuing to allow uh, pro-choice legislation on the books for not, uh, you know, adding, uh, eroding any constitutional guarantees of the right to choose. So this is pretty much a majority throughout the United States. And the Republicans have kind of uh, painted themselves into a corner on this. The Democrats have not been quiet since this Texas ruling. What Remind us what's happened in the last couple of days. Well, three Democratic governors of uh, very Democratic states, Jay Inslee in the state of Washington, Maura Healey in Massachusetts, and California's own Gavin Newsom, have all announced that their state will purchase tens of thousands, or in the case of California, two million uh, abortion pills. Uh, just to stock up uh, in the event that the Supreme Court actually upholds uh, Judge Kasmarek's ruling. So that's sort of the state response. I was gratified to see that my old hometown and your current hometown, Los Angeles, has gone beyond that. The most significant is that the L.A. County District Attorney and the L.A. County Sheriff, both elected positions in the nation's largest county with 10 million people have said that they're not going to arrest or prosecute uh, anyone for essentially exercising her right to terminate a pregnancy uh, in language so broad that if a pharmacy were to have uh, mifepristone somehow, even after uh, the court, uh, the high court, went along with uh, uh, the Texas judge, which I don't think it will, but they wouldn't prosecute. They wouldn't prosecute, they wouldn't prosecute the person who purchased it. And it's the way it reads, I don't know that they'd even prosecute the pharmacy. So you're beginning to get 
the kind of resistance that occasionally we see in this country when there are great divisions. It reminded me of the Northern states that refused to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act in the 10 years before the Civil War. Call to mind Andrew Jackson's uh, probably apocryphal remark about Chief Justice John Marshall, that he's made his decision, now let him enforce it. Uh, (laughs) You know, suggesting that Alito and Thomas would have to come to LA and make the arrests themselves. (laughs) So everyone seems confident that this ruling in Texas, that the FDA was wrong to approve methapristone, that this is going to end up at the Supreme Court. You have mentioned that you think it's unlikely that the Supreme Court will actually affirm this ruling. Why do you think that? Well, I mean, the basic reason I think that is because this would uh, delegitimate the court for decades, if not centuries to come. (laughs) But I think you've clearly got the three liberals uh, voting against upholding uh, the Texas judge's decision. Uh, Since uh, John Roberts was uh, clearly not thrilled with the Dobbs decision, I think he would side with those three liberals. I don't put it past Thomas and Alito to uphold it, but that leaves the three justices appointed by Donald Trump. Now, there are lots of reasons they could throw out the Texas decision. The easiest one for them would simply be that uh, the suit was brought by attorneys general of, uh, of Republican states, and they themselves had not been affected by the presumably adverse effects of mifepristone and therefore lacked standing. Also, uh, the court has repeatedly ruled that when Congress authorizes a government agency to make scientifically grounded rulings, and that's exactly what Congress authorized the FDA to do, the court can't overturn one of those rulings. So there's multiple reasons why uh, the justices, the three justices who are not quite so uh, whacked out as uh, Thomas and Alito, could find a reason to reject the Texas ruling and save what little is left of the Supreme Court's rather tarnished credibility. And also do this without themselves endorsing a right to abortion. Yeah, if If you simply say that the plaintiffs lack lack standing, you can avoid the problem that most Americans would would note of your own (laughs) profound opposition to abortion. You can just sidestep that. Yeah, there's one, one... Uh, additional standing objection, which I thought was particularly fascinating. The plaintiffs include a group of anti-abortion doctors. Now, since they don't prescribe mifepristone, you have to ask, well, how could they possibly be injured by its use? Here's here's their argument. Their argument is they have standing. They are injured. They are injured by by mifepristone because other doctors prescribe mifepristone, and these doctors' patients experience adverse side effects, which they then seek help in dealing with from the doctors who are the plaintiffs. And that enough women who took mifepristone will turn to anti-abortion doctors for help that it will burden the plaintiff's medical practice. Now, there are so many ifs and possibilities there. You suggest that perhaps Justice Kavanaugh, for example, might say, well, that's not really a very good argument. Yeah, look, it's also the case that when a woman has an unwanted pregnancy that she is legally unable to terminate, and uh, this certainly would disproportionately affect poor women, then they're raising children in poor conditions, and more of those children and women would come 
to those doctors then come now uh, having been uh, harmed, uh, although there's almost no record of harm uh, uh, delivered by mefepristone. So, you know, I mean, I think the the the, the counter uh, uh, scenario <laughs> is much more credible than the one these uh, anti-abortion doctors have advanced. Uh, there's also one other technicality that the conservative justices could rely on, and that is there's a six-year statute of limitations on challenging FDA rulings, and this ruling was made in 2000 a long time ago. They missed the deadline by, you yeah. know, 27 yeah, years. Uh, yeah, there, there are many ways they can uh, climb down from this without really having to take a side other than, you know, essentially covering their ass, which is a technical legal term. The other thing I've been trying to figure out is when is this going to come before the court and will it be before November of 2024? First, it has to go to the appeals court. The wheels of justice turn slowly in America. Do you have any idea what the schedule well, might if, be? Well, if it had only been this opinion, then yeah. But a, a judge in the state of Washington issued a directly counter opinion one hour after uh, Kasmarek came up with his. And I would assume to, to the degree that Kasmarek goes to the Fifth Circuit and the Washington judge goes to the Ninth Circuit, that those circuits have a chance of upholding the respective opinions, and that punts it immediately to the Supreme Court. Now, given that there are partisan Republicans on the court, if they're going to uh, reverse the Texas decision, they probably don't want to leave this hanging over the 24 election, where it would make life for the Republicans even worse. So I would think it will come before uh, November 2024. I wouldn't be surprised if somehow or other it even comes up before this term ends in uh, at the end of June. So Republicans are in really desperate situation on abortion. Uh, they're also losing ground on guns. Every mass shooting provides another uh, reason for, for example, women to oppose Republican candidates who want complete freedom for, you know, gigantic magazines for automatic weapons. Republicans are also losing ground on climate change, an issue that mobilizes young people. Really, the Republicans have one major hope, it seems to me, for 2024, and that is a recession. But, you know, unless there is a recession, the other thing Republicans don't talk about these days is the economy. And that is because all of their basic positions, which favor cutting Social Security, cutting Medicare, which clearly would hurt uh, their uh, support among the elderly, but even cutting Medicaid and food stamps, which given that the Republicans now have a substantial white working class base, cuts into that base. I mean, there were even before the pandemic, there were 90 million people on Medicaid in this country. And a lot of them, uh, and who knows, maybe even a majority are Republicans. So there's not a lot they can actually say about the economy. And that that's illustrated by the fact that uh, the Republicans in the House said, well, we're going to come up with a list of things that should be cut as a condition for our voting for the uh, raising the debt ceiling. And they haven't done that. They're not able to. Supposedly, they've only you know come up with maybe two proposals when they were looking at 10. And so what they basically do is uh, raise anything that they consider to be woke and uh, in, in, invoke that stuff. I noted recently that the North Dakota legislature has enacted eight bills on uh, transgender issues. 
it's not even clear if you look at the statistics, there are eight transgender people in North Dakota, <laughs> might be a one to one ratio there. Um, but, you know, that that is such a bizarre sense of, you know, what where the issues are that we can go to say the Republicans, you know, I mean, it's it's a rather limited scope of issues and it requires, you know, kind of a Fox News effort to raise the profile of what are really non-issues or secondary issues to primary issues. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, a regular feature of this broadcast. The UAW has a new president, Sean Fain, elected under new rules. Remind us, please, what's happened to the UAW in the last year? Well, major deterioration over several decades from what was once the great American Union, arguably the only social democratic institution in American history that had real power. But as the quality of leadership declined, it also became less honest. The federal uh, uh, prosecutors started investigating two former presidents and many other uh, top-ranking UAW officials were convicted of misappropriating union funds for personal use for homes in Palm Springs and so on. Two of those pres former presidents uh, served jail time and a reform movement rose up. And as was the case with the Teamsters, the feds got a court order and gave the uh, membership the option of a new way of selecting its officers. Instead of going to delegated conventions, which they've been doing since the union was founded in 1935-36, the rank and file was given a vote. And given a vote, they pretty much ousted the ancien regime, not only as a new president, but uh, the supporters of this reform effort now also have a majority on the union's uh, executive board. So it's really a new crew that's in there running the UAW at a very important time for manufacturing workers in general in this country and auto workers in particular. Yeah, the UAW remains the largest union of manufacturing workers in America, and in particular, they represent auto workers, and the auto workers' master contract expires on September 14th, and there's still 150,000 people who uh, work for General Motors, Ford, and this, this new multinational Stellantis, which used to be Fiat, Chrysler, and some other companies. So September 14th is a very big day for the UAW. And of course, the auto industry, as we well know, is undergoing a earth-shaking transformation to electric vehicles over the next decade. And the unionized workers, virtually every one of them, makes gasoline-powered cars and trucks. And the EV industry and the battery industry right now, as I, as I understand it, are pretty much completely non-union. Well, not completely. The UAW has managed to uh, get management neutrality in a couple of uh, the EV plants in northern states. But, you know, the big three auto companies, just like all of the foreign transplants, have mainly been locating their factories in the non-union, anti-union south where the UAW has not succeeded in organizing a plant uh, in forever, basically. So they, they face a real challenge there. They face a challenge because uh, when the federal government bailed out GM and Chrysler and the 2008 uh, economic meltdown, the union agreed to allow management to hire newer workers at lower pay and benefit rates, what's called a two-tier contract. 
Well, those companies are now all making record profits, and the new leadership of the UAW, quite rightly, has said we want an end to this two-tier business, uh, two workers standing on the same assembly line doing the same work, one making uh, a good deal more than the other. That's crazy. We we want the second tier eliminated and those workers brought up to uh, to our standard. We want to, uh, as did the old union uh, leadership, want to make sure that the current factories are kept in place. And we want you at least to pledge neutrality when you go in on building a uh, an electric vehicle plant or a lithium uh, ion battery plant or what have you. So they've got a, they have a big bargaining challenge ahead of them, which they're uh, which they're well aware of. The UAW, as you have often reminded us, is a union built by strikes, and they still do strike, at least against the University of California and, and other employers of non permanent labor. Do you see a strike as a possibility in what remains of the auto auto uh, industry? Absolutely. Absolutely. What the old pattern was when there was the big three were GM, Ford, and Chrysler before Chrysler, as you noted, mutated into several other things. Uh, They would always strike one of the three companies uh, and put that company, therefore, at a uh, competitive disadvantage with the other two. And now with all the other transplants, uh, Toyotas and Hondas and what have you. uh, And uh, that company would then come to a settlement, which would be presumably the model contract for the other two uh, legacy auto companies. And I I would suspect that they they will do that. And that is not really a departure from old UAW practice, even though the UAW around you know the 2008 crash had no leverage they have some leverage now and i fully expect they will use it the uh, new york times uh on tuesday ran a big story about a a new strike underway at rutgers by of all people faculty members as a long time career faculty member i never thought faculty members would go on strike, but it there's picket lines at the Rutgers three main campuses in New Brunswick, Newark, and Camden. It's the first faculty strike in the 257-year history of Rutgers. Uh, it affects 67,000 students, uh, and one of the top issues is the rights of untenured adjunct faculty members and grad student employees. This is not a, a UAW strike. This is an AFT strike, but it's very much the same sort of strike. Right. It's the same sort of dynamic. Well, I, I mean, as we've seen uh, in in recent years, while there's been an upsurge in union popularity very clearly in the general population, still the workers who are able to unionize and the workers who are able to strike and in both cases win are workers whom management cannot replace. And clearly a university cannot replace its uh, grad student faculty, its adjunct faculty, much less its tenured faculty. <laughs> yeah. uh, so they will, uh, you know, I mean, this will be a struggle, but they will uh, they will win some gains because, you know, it's not like uh, you're a fast food worker. And if you want to unionize, you get fired and they just bring in another fast food worker. It, 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 so they do have a, a foot in the door that uh, um, a lot of other kinds of workers do not. And there's a one other source of leverage. Rutgers is a public institution run by the state of New Jersey. And the governor uh, on Tuesday invited representatives from the university and the unions to 
come to Trenton, the state capital, and negotiate under his uh, auspices. That seems promising for the union, don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, the guy on top of even the president and chancellor of, uh, of, of Rutgers clearly wants to come across as a egalitarian pro-union guy, not least because his background was in banking long ago. And so, you know, uh, that has to be, uh, d- d- you know, dispelled. One last thing from our Trump watch desk. On Easter Sunday, Trump tweeted three words. It was not happy Easter, everybody. His Easter Sunday tweet was World War Three. Some readers found that puzzling. What do you think he's driving it? I'm I'm not sure, but possibly he means him versus uh, Manhattan DA Bragg, uh, the, the 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 DA in uh, Georgia, uh, the Justice Department, the Democrats, uh, and the civilized portion of the planet. <laughs> Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always good to have you on the show. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The left has hated J. Edgar Hoover for a hundred years, ever since the Palmer raids of 1919, the attacks on radicals that began his career. Now there's a terrific new biography of Hoover that puts it all together from beginning to end with a lot of stunning new information. It's called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. The author is Beverly Gage. She teaches history at Yale. She writes frequently for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the New Yorker. Beverly Gage, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, John. We know a lot about the bad things Hoover did, wiretapping Martin Luther King and then trying to blackmail him into committing suicide right before he was to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, and COINTELPRO, the secret campaign to disrupt the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the black power movement. But your book reminds us that Hoover also did some things that were not bad. So let's be fair and remind us what's on your list. Well, it is true that the book tries to take a a pretty balanced view of Hoover, which actually isn't that hard to do when you have someone who has been so villainized for so long, (laughs) even acknowledging a handful of good things um, puts you you somewhere in the uh, the revisionist camp. Um, But I would say that most of the quote unquote good things that Hoover did in his life came out of a tradition of kind of professional government service that he learned during the progressive era when he was a young man. He believed in the power of the state. He believed in the power of expertise. And so there are lots of moments where he is actually acting as almost a civil libertarian. He opposed Japanese mass incarceration and internment during the Second World War, which was not a popular view in in even the Roosevelt administration. There are some great moments in the book where he stands up to Richard Nixon, and Richard Nixon thinks that uh, Hoover has become some sort of civil libertarian. Um, And then there are just some moments where the FBI actually delivers on what it's supposed to deliver on, which is solving crimes and uh, enforcing the law. 
Yeah, for example, in 1964, uh, he helped prosecute the Klan killers of the Mississippi Freedom Summer Volunteers, Mickey Schwerner, James Goodman, and Andrew Cheney. So I want to talk for a minute more about Hoover and Nixon. One of the good things that he did was refuse Nixon's request to go after Daniel Ellsberg after the release of the Pentagon Papers. So what exactly did Nixon want? This is 1969, 1970, and why did Hoover refuse? Nixon wanted it's the FBI didn't refuse altogether uh, to investigate. They were kind of looking into things, but Nixon wanted a much more aggressive campaign. And Hoover held back for a couple of reasons. One is that in 1969 and 70, Nixon and Henry Kissinger had already asked Hoover to uh, wiretap White House staffers, members of the press who were suspected of leaking. And Hoover went along with it. He did it, but he wasn't sure it was going to be a very very good idea. And he was really worried about what would happen if it came out, particularly the wiretapping of members of the press. So he's already cautious about those things. He often uh, said that he was friendly with Daniel Ellsberg's father-in-law as well. So there was a personal side to this story. And Hoover was just growing a little bit more cautious in his old age. And I think a little bit more aware of just how combustible and controversial it would be in the end. And rightly so, you know, he said, we got to really hold back. They're going to make Ellsberg into a martyr. And uh, Nixon, of course, didn't didn't listen to him. <laughs> so what did Nixon do when Hoover refused to go after Ellsberg the way Nixon wanted him to? Yeah, it's one of the moments where Nixon says, okay, if the FBI isn't going to do exactly what I want, I'm going to have my own team. Um, and this is one of the origins of the plumbers and the plumbers themselves, who were sort of Nixon's dirty trick squad. Um, they had members of the FBI, former agents and others who had been trained by Hoover, uh, but who were now willing to do Nixon's bidding a little bit more directly. And that plumber's thing, as I recall, didn't work out that well for Nixon. Yeah, you know, he, he might have seen that this stuff. Uh, he had listened to Edgar. Maybe it would have all been different. It's actually funny when you when you listen to the Nixon tapes. Um, Watergate happens right after Hoover's death. Uh, and a, a few years in, you you hear Nixon saying, if my old friend Edgar were still around, you know, it wouldn't all be collapsing around me like this. But before Hoover dies, just a year before he died, came the event that damaged him more than anything else in his lifetime, the break-in at the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, March 1971. Remind us what happened there. This is really a fantastic story, and it's been told tremendously well in a book by Betty Medzger called The Burglary, as well as a terrific documentary film called 1971 by Johanna Hamilton. Um, and it's an incredible story, first of all, because it's just a small band of activists in the Philadelphia area um, who in 1971 decide that they want to expose what the FBI has do been doing to the new left. Um, and so they break in to a very small regional office in Media, Pennsylvania, which actually happens to be right next to my hometown. So I felt a kind of good hometown connection to this story. Um, and they go in and they steal all of Hoover's files, all of the files that are in there. Um, and this really becomes the moment that 
uh, we get some documentation of what almost everyone in the new left understood was happening, which was uh, FBI infiltration, surveillance um, of a wide range of activists. But the really great part of the story is that the FBI fails to catch them. And uh, so they they actually really got away with it and uh, came out and revealed themselves uh, about 10 years ago. Um, turns out a bunch of uh, good anti-war activists from the from the Philadelphia area. Later that year, after the media FBI burglary, the fall of 1971, Nixon decided it was time for Hoover to go. You say Nixon's advisors suggested various inducements he could offer Hoover, for example, they do a lot of very funny brainstorming about it. Um, like maybe we can bump him up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's maybe the one that really—that's <laughs> the one that really got to me. Are you exactly. kidding? But the beautiful thing about that story is that Nixon actually brings Hoover in, tries to have this conversation, tries to make the case that the moment has come to step down. And uh, Hoover more or less refuses. He says, well, you know, Dick, if you insist and you order me to step down, you're the president. Obviously, I would have to do it, but I don't want to do it. And Nixon says, oh, OK, well, if you don't want to do it, nobody's <laughs> nobody's insisting on this. And why? Why didn't Nixon fire him when he decided? decided it was time for Hoover to go. This is one of the great questions of Hoover's career, and it's not just Nixon, right? Hoover was director of the FBI for 48 years. So he started under Calvin Coolidge, um, and he lasts under eight presidents, four of them Democrats, four of them Republicans. And so that's one of the big questions. How did he do it? And I think there are a combination of factors. So one that we wouldn't tend to think about today is the fact that even very very late in life, uh, Hoover was pretty popular. And for most of his career, he was incredibly popular. He was one of the most popular, best respected public servants in America, certainly in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, by the time we get to the Nixon years, I think Nixon sees a couple of things going on. One is that he really based a lot of his 1968 campaign and that a lot of his domestic politics around a kind of Hoover-esque law and order message. And so he's been celebrating Hoover um, and he's nervous that law and order conservatives are going to be upset with him if he forces Hoover out. Hoover knows a lot of things about the Nixon administration as well from the secret wiretaps that he had planted uh, for them. And, uh, you know, there are great quotes um, from kind of the end of the first Nixon term in which Nixon says that he fears, you know, if they really try to ease Hoover out, that Hoover is this man who's going to bring down the temple around him, that he knows everything and uh, it's just too, too dangerous. So Hoover died in office, May 1972. What did Nixon say when he heard the news? Nixon said that old cocksucker uh, <laughs> and he... Uh, you know, it's an interesting moment because Nixon, I think, is very relieved when Hoover dies because it solves a problem that he's been trying to solve for a while, or at least he thinks it will solve his problem. Uh, but there also seems to be some real grief there. I mean, this is someone who had been in his life for 25 years. They had socialized together. They had been political allies. That phrase, that old cocksucker, you could take it to be an expression of admiration, which you do in the book, but you could also take it as a reference to Hoover's homosexuality, 
So we need to talk about Hoover's relationship with Clyde Tolson. That relationship was not a secret, right? What did people know about Hoover and Tolson during his lifetime? This was the key relationship of Hoover's life, and Clyde Tolson was his second in command at the FBI for most of his career, really from the 1930s onward. Tolson became an agent in 1928. Um, and it is a funny combination of a very open and very public relationship, and then a very inaccessible and in some ways quite secretive relationship. The open part of it is that they worked very closely together at the FBI for four decades. Um, and so their private and public lives were really fused. Neither one of them married, and they were obviously each other's primary social partner. So uh, they traveled together, they double dated together, they went to nightclubs together, and the racetrack together. And everyone in Washington, in New York, in LA, the places they hung out, knew to treat them as a couple. And they were a very widely accepted social couple. Now, whether you could then describe them as a gay couple is a slightly different question. So certainly they pushed back against that. Your evidence on uh, this relationship includes Hoover's private vacation photos. These are remarkable documents, and we salute you for publishing these in the book. Tell us about them and what you make of them. Yeah, Hoover left behind these amazing photo albums, and they are his personal photo albums. And certainly in the 30s and 40s, especially, a lot of what's there are very, very intimate photos of his vacations with Tolson. Um, the ones that I published are my favorites, but <laughs> there are dozens and dozens of these that you could choose from. And a lot of them are really very intimate shots uh, in bath bathrobes, in uh, bathing suits, out on the beach, kind of private moments of gazing at each other, them with their arms thrown around each other uh, in a sort of friendly way, more than a romantic way necessarily. But uh, what really struck me about those is, on the one hand, just their, their, their genuine intimacy, which you can really see and feel in them, and then the sheer number of them. What did Bobby Kennedy call Hoover and Tolson? Bobby Kennedy was not super nice to them or big fans of them, and he used to refer to them as J. Edna and Clyde. <laughs> Man. I also was a, a, a amazed to see that starting in 1962, the Manachine Society, the first gay organization, started inviting him to their events. That was a great file to come across. So the, the local Mattachine Society in Washington, D.C. is clearly having some fun with the FBI, you know, and at a moment when it required actually a lot of bravery and confidence uh, to do that, but they start putting Hoover on their mailing list, inviting him to such events as, you know, the Homosexual in America, a lecture for uh, those who might want to be informed. And Hoover gets very worked up about this. He gets them <laughs> called into the FBI and they say, well, we'll take you off our list if you'll take us off of yours. <laughs> Great, great story. So now back to the beginning. Young J. Edgar Hoover went to college at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and joined a fraternity called Kappa Alpha. This is one of my favorite parts of your book. Tell us about Kappa Alpha. 
Kappa Alpha is really a fascinating institution and one that I didn't know much about when I started writing about Hoover. The National Kappa Alpha had been formed in 1865, uh, key year, end of the Civil War, to honor the memory and the lost cause of Robert E. Lee. And so throughout the late 19th and into the early 20th century, they're a really key institution uh, for white Southern men, uh, particularly very prominent white Southern political men, and two of the biggest figures in the fraternity at the moment that Hoover joined were John Temple Graves, who was uh, a segregationist, pro-lynching Southern editor, very famous figure, a great champion of the Atlanta race riot, and not in the ways one might want. Uh, and the other was Thomas Dixon, who was the author of The Klansman, which is the film that became the birth of a nation. And they're really the two standard bearers of the fraternity on a cultural level. And then you've got all these Southern Democrats who were actively engaged in uh, creating segregation in the early early 20th century. They're all kind of in the alumni chapters around DC. And I think this is a lot of where Hoover gets both his racial um, and to some degree, his political education is, is in his fraternity. And Kappa Alpha, I learned from Google, is still going strong. They have chapters at 122 schools. We record our program in Los Angeles, and there's a chapter of Kappa Alpha at USC. And it was in the news just the last year. It was one of six fraternities that refused to accept the university's new rules on preventing sexual assault at frat parties. Kappa Alpha, still going strong. Well, we have to talk about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Their execution in 1953 for stealing the secret of the atom bomb and giving it to the Russians was one of Hoover's highest profile projects. But now we know that the FBI basically went after the wrong guy. The Russians did get American atomic secrets, but not from Julius and Ethel. They got them from real nuclear scientists. First of all, Klaus Fuchs, who was caught by the Brits, and then from a brilliant young American physicist named Ted Hall. Ted Hall was identified in the Venona decrypts that the FBI had as a key Soviet spy at Los Alamos. The FBI investigated Ted Hall for spying, but they never arrested him, and he went on to live a long and happy life as a scientist. There's a book about uh, his life. It's called Bombshell, The Secret Story of America's Unknown Atomic Spy Conspiracy by Joseph Albright and Marcia Kunstel. Uh, and at the same time we learned about Ted Hall, we also learned that David Greenglass, who was the FBI's key witness against the Rosenbergs, the brother of Ethel, admitted that he had lied about her in the trial, that she had not typed the documents Julius gave to the Soviets. And so his lies sent her to the electric chair. That story was told in an interview by Sam Roberts at the New York Times in 1996. And he later wrote a book about it called The Brother. That book had one unforgettable sentence. William P. Rogers, who was deputy attorney general at the time of the execution, and later Secretary of State under Nixon, admitted to Sam Roberts of the New York Times that the government's objective was never to kill the Rosenbergs, but to get them to confess. And he said of Ethel, quote, she called our bluff. She called our bluff. So Julius was a spy, but he didn't give the secret of the A-bomb to the Russians. Ethel was framed by the FBI and her brother. The real spy was never prosecuted. My question for you is, why did Hoover decide to go after the Rosenbergs instead of 
Ted Hall. Well, the Venona Project is a really interesting and somewhat complicated story. So on the one hand, uh, these are decrypts that the army gets during the war. Um, they begin after the war to collaborate with the FBI in trying to sort out what is in these Soviet communications. Um, and they find that a lot of them have to do with, uh, with intelligence and espionage. And so beginning in the late 40s, they work together. Um, Venona leads them, in fact, to a, a pretty substantial number of people, including Julius Rosenberg. Um, it leads them to far more people, as you suggest, than they're actually able to prosecute. Um, and that's partly because their number one goal with Venona is to keep its existence secret. So they're able to go after Julius Rosenberg because they have a witness who is willing to testify, right? So because you have David and then Ruth Greenglass, uh, you're able to actually do something in court. And during the entire Rosenberg case, the existence of Venona is not known, though people, uh, people do have a sense that there's something that the FBI knows that they're holding back. And in fact, they're right about that. But on the other hand, because you want to keep this secret, if you can't find a witness and you can't find material evidence, you can know to a great degree of certainty that someone like Ted Hall has been engaged in atomic espionage. But, you know, if you're prioritizing secrecy, uh, you're not going to go after him. And that was the decision that the, the FBI, the Justice Department and the Army made together. You know, when they went after the Rosenbergs, as you say, the hope really was that the Rosenbergs would then flip and talk about other people and they would kind of keep following this chain down the line um, and be able to uh, to go further. But the Rosenbergs do, in some sense, really, really stop it. And while Hoover was failing to get Julius and Ethel to cooperate, he was giving those most top secret counter espionage documents, the Venona decrypts, to the top British intelligence official in the United States, Kim Philby, who was soon shown to be a Soviet spy. How devastating was that for Hoover? It was pretty bad. That wasn't a great moment, right? So Kim Philby is this kind of illustrious a British counterintelligence person who gets sent over to be the, the liaison to the FBI and the CIA uh, in the very late 1940s, but of course turns out to have been a Soviet spy the entire time he's working for the British. So that was pretty devastating to uh, to American intelligence, the FBI and the, and the CIA both. And what did the CIA conclude about this whole episode with giving the Venona secrets to uh, Kim Philby? Yeah, one CIA official says something pretty devastating, which is that uh, the FBI and the CIA would have been better off doing nothing about Soviet espionage in the 40s and 50s, rather than uh, engaging in what they did and handing it all over, in essence, to Kim Philby and the Soviets. So um, you've said how popular J. Edgar Hoover was at the peak of his career, you have this uh, startling uh, opinion poll in 1964 after uh, Hoover denounced Martin Luther King as America's most notorious liar. How did that go over with the public? 
This is a really famous moment. It's still a point of reference today, uh, the moment that Hoover really publicly goes after King and calls him the most notorious liar. Uh, and today, of course, we think evil J. Edgar Hoover, nobody would support that, you know, kind of sainted Martin Luther King. But at the time, that is not at all how the politics played out. So in a, in a poll conducted in that moment, full 50% of Americans say that they support Hoover, 16% say they're on King's side, and then a whole bunch of people say uh, they don't really know which side to be on. And what's interesting to me about that poll is that it suggests you know, that some of our more comforting national narratives uh, should be rethought a little bit, because that's actually what the politics of the 60s looked like. So you conclude your story of J. Edgar Hoover, that this is a story about America in the 20th century, what we tolerated and what we refused to see. Right. Part of the goal in this book is not just to have it be about this very, very interesting uh, and long-lived and influential man named J. Edgar Hoover, but really to tell a story about the growth of American government, particularly of the security state over the course of the 20th century, and to tell a story about Washington and national politics itself. Um, and I think that Hoover conceived of himself as being a person who really policed the limits of American democracy and decided what was going to be legitimate speech and what was going to be illegitimate speech. And he did a lot of that in secret. And so I think today, there's something really to be contended with about the idea, first of all, that Hoover was as popular as he was. We tend to think, oh, he was a rogue actor, and therefore, had people only known what he was up to, surely they would have rejected it. But he was pretty open about a lot of what he was doing, and in fact, had very deep and widespread support. And I think that tells us something different about our story of the 20th century than we might like to think. Uh, and then the piece that was secret, which was uh, some of the details of his secret apparatus um, also ought to lead us to, you know, think really seriously about the kind of security state that was built um, out of the pressures of the 20th century, the ways in which it has contained political possibility and political speech over the course of the 20th century. Um, and we should think about how much of that we want in our own lives today. The book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. In The New Yorker, Margaret Talbot called it crisply written, prodigiously researched, and frequently astonishing. The author is Beverly Gage. Bev, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Beverly Gage's book, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century, has been nominated for the LA Times Book Prize, which will be awarded next week. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. 
Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Ah!